Hello! Welcome to Why Not Both, the podcast all about how our multiple passions and interests shape our identity and our lives. My name is Pam Schaefer, and I am a musician and therapist in Los Angeles, and I also happen to be your host. This podcast is produced by Laura Studeris, and for this season, we've partnered up with Under the Radar magazine. If you like what you hear, you can hang out with us on social media. We are on Twitter and Instagram at WNB, the podcast. And if you really, really like what you hear, please support us on Patreon. We are under Why Not Both podcast. When you join our Patreon, you get a whole bunch of really cool behind the scenes stuff and you get to chat with us. And that's pretty awesome. Thank you so much for your support and I hope you enjoy our interviews. For this week's episode, we are joined by the insightful and talented writer, Lori Penny, otherwise known as my pandemic podmate. I hope that you enjoy our interview. So Lori, welcome to Why Not Both. Hi, Pam. Hi, Lori. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to the strange playground that is my podcast. I'm so excited to finally be on the podcast. <laughs> You've only watched me edit it for hours on end. <laughs> yeah. Thrilling, really. <laughs> and now I'm and now I don't know what to say. Exactly. Such as Sorry. The- <laughs> You're like, that's it. That's the whole podcast. That was it. Go home. I'm Laurie. I do stuff. <laughs> I mean, you were around for like the the very start of the podcast where I used to be like, hey, what are the multiple things that you do and how do they inform your identity? And now it's more like so the last year was weird. Last year was very, very weird. And it was an <laughs> honor to be your pod mate. And I miss you. Oh, I miss you too. That was, for listeners, uh, Lori was my pod mate where for several months, uh, Lori was one of the only human beings that I saw in person. And it was a sheer delight. Lori's an amazing cook, by the way. Oh, thank you for saying so. It's uh, we should tell people um, how that happened, how oh the podding gosh. happened. That was a. The, I was to... gonna say, do you want to? <laughs> wanna... All right, all right. So, it's um, I believe it was March the fourteenth or fifteenth, twenty twenty, and you were shooting a music video, or you were about to shoot a music video, and me and Nati Vogel, wonderful Nati Vogel, my housemate, roommate at the time. We're having a bed bug situation, uh, which was really not nice at all. And we were going around to Pam's house <laughs> to use the shower and to be somewhere that wasn't being bed bug fumigated. And on this day, when Pam is setting up for her video, um, her video recording and uh, for the shoot she's going to do, the news comes through from Mayor Garcetti saying... Um, the lockdown is coming, the lockdown's happening, stay with the people you're in, stay in your homes, stay for at home order. And we turned on the news, we all watched it and we're like, well, I guess we're the people we're in contact with now. I guess this is it. And then we, uh, and then we were like, well, I guess we'll do the show right here. So we shot the music video. That whole, it was a very odd day. I've never been a video honey before. We played dress up with your clothes. Also clothes, because all my clothes were being bed bug fumigated. (laughs) Fortunately, we're the same height. Um, And uh, yeah, I danced and wiggled about in the back 
back of your music video. But I also remember the uh, the the afternoon before because we were going to come around to yours, and it was when all the grocery stores were just being cleared out. It was the pre-apocalypse, and you need you needed a pomegranate. Yeah, you needed a pomegranate for your video, and I just remember going round the <laughs> Alberts uh, in Los Feliz, being like, "We need a pomegranate for Pam." It was like a journey through the underworld. We didn't find a pomegranate <laughs> I, because yeah. uh, there was no fruit at all. No yeah. food. You sent me photos, and it was so surreal. And I love that. By the way, we also had our invisible housemate of no one, but now housemate of all of us. Our friend Sam was with us through this yes. journey because he was helping with the fumigation. So he accidentally he got, like, jumped into That's our how game. it became the four of us. <laughs> like, <laughs> I like it was, lovely. it was brilliant. It really um, we balanced each other in the strangest. Mm -hmm. I still, it, it yeah. felt like apocalypse summer camp. It was, it was, it was brilliant. <laughs> and then we were in the paper as being put. Remember back when being a pod was a thing that was new? Yes. Um, and we got interviewed for the LA Times about <laughs> being in a pod. That will, I still, I'm so glad that you are part of one of my favorite memories, which was that I finally made the front page of my hometown newspaper, the LA Times, for having friends. Having friends. <laughs> Newsflash, people have friends. Like that will forever be one of my favorite things that happened that it's like, well, you know, growing up in LA, you always want to be like, oh, well, you know, I want to be in the times. It's like, you know, it's like being on KCRW. Oh, right? yes, like, of yeah. And that I made the front page of the LA times. And it was like, <laughs> I believe we were on the front page and we looked like sort of, you know, like we're bunkering down in some kind of nuclear. There's this picture of us all looking through the window, like little lost orphans. <laughs> Everyone doing their best sort of semi-pout. And we're like, what, what facial expression do you have for you're now trapped in like the Gilligan's Island of Silver Lake during the <laughs> pandemic? Like, it was amazing. <laughs> but I think, and it was, you talking about like, that's why I've seen you edit this podcast so much. But also it's been wonderful, particularly like living, being in such close contact in those intense circumstances with, with you and Nasty and you're both recording artists because... You know, I've lived with and worked with a lot of creative people, but before coming to LA and knowing you guys, I didn't, I just didn't understand what goes into being a musician in that way. Uh -huh. And it was fascinating watching it. I'm just, I just assume you, you know, you turn on the microphone, you play the instruments, you go home. <laughs> Apparently not. <laughs> Apparently there's a bit more to it than that. <laughs> you mean the, you miss the swearing at your gear, rolling around on the floor, drinking LaCroix, singing in the bathtub portions of. <laughs> yeah. Also, <laughs> wow, with Nasi, when he's, uh, when he was making and composing an album, uh -huh. like, living with somebody who is, uh, living with somebody who is composing music is very different from you know, you imagine, oh, you live with a pianist. There'll be con concert, constant concerts, constant concerts, say it 10 times fast. But no, no, living with somebody who's composing or practicing is the same line of music again and again and again and again and again and again and again for hours. It's kind um, of like a Philip Glass composition, but like yeah. not. <laughs> and um, this is happening where we're sharing one auditory space <laughs> and can't and can't leave and I have deadlines so now I have excellent noise cancelling headphones 
I I now have those headphones because of your recommendation for like That's so very, good. very similar reason because it was so fascinating knowing that like you had come to Los Angeles to be like I'm going to write in TV and then it was like surprise you are going to write in TV but now for a side quest <laughs> pandemic times the way that we met was just very silly though now that I think about yes. it yeah I, I yelled internet at you and I was like yes internet friend <laughs> and um on, we were actually at a party which was an interesting party where it was uh my ideal it was a quiet reading party you go and you you read quietly with other people but I think that's exactly the kind of party where you're not supposed to literally yell internet across the room I think that's the point of having that party is nobody yells internet which hilariously I mean that is my favorite genre of party and I ruined it for myself slash made it the best ever because now we're friends it was great it was great and that was the um that was the second or third week I was in Los Angeles professionally, although I'd come across to visit a friend before. Yes. And I had just, just started working on The Nevers, which was mental because um, really I had no, I had no idea what a big deal it would be taking on this TV job. Um, I just was entirely burned out on feminist journalism and really wanted to do something different. And this seemed like a cool opportunity to go somewhere else. And um, literally three weeks before, I had no idea what you did in the TV writer's room. Honestly, I, I still don't, but it was very, very abrupt change and you just hit the ground running. And it was only really after that that I realized, oh wait, no, this is something I really want to do. This is fantastic. Partly because, um, I mean, in Hollywood, they there is a lot of talk about toxic workplaces, and um, and I understand that this is a thing that happens. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when I came into the writers' room on the Nevers, I had come from feminist journalism, which <laughs> meant that my idea of what a toxic workplace is was was very very off. Right? It was just I was just really happy that nobody was telling me to die that day, and Thanks. somebody brought yeah, <laughs> somebody brought me lunch. This is amazing. Standards below ground yeah. somewhere in the system. <laughs> standard is in the floor. Standard is way. It's not the the bar is is way below the floor. Exactly. Um, and we get up to make up stories for a living. This is amazing, and um, and so after that, I was just like, right, I have to make this work. Um, this is fantastic, and uh, I hustled, got a manager. And um, and then I've worked on a couple of shows since, and I'm now doing a, a lot of development, which is exciting. But it is um, this is why I've always wanted to do this podcast because the why not both of it all is a, an interesting disconnect. I mean, so mm. I'm doing because I'm still doing the journalism and the essays, and um, I've spent the last three years doing this enormous book which is finally, 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 finally done. And now I'm moving on to the next things. But writing like in-depth theory, political journalism versus collaborative story work where the aim is to, is is first and foremost to entertain and create something magical and kind of escapist. Mm-hmm. Um, there is, uh, well, certainly toggling between the two is the most diff- difficult thing because it does involve it's some of the same skills, but a very different mindset. Um, and also even just very different line level skills that like you're, you're not just tweaking and tweaking to get the exact best argument line. You have to learn how to set out a scene. 
um, which is something I find hard enough in real life, let alone in real life. Oh. <laughs> you know, the question is always like, what do these people want? Why are they in this room talking to each other? What's the purpose? I'm like, I don't know. I never know. Don't <laughs> ask me. <laughs> so I can tell you what they said. It's just like that people have purpose and motivation. Yes, and it's very opaque. And I wish they'd just say. Yes. <laughs> And that's, it's fascinating hearing about, it's almost like the polarity of like the implied in the emotional storytelling and the fantasy mm-hmm. versus the meta-analysis of the concrete. And that it's like, yes. yeah, I'm like, that would be such, yeah. When you said toggling yeah. back and forth, I was like, what, what was that like? And did either of them start informing the other? Like, did delving into the fantasy world inform what you then saw in kind of like the meta-analysis of our political situations or like vice versa? Absolutely. As, all, as well, um, as well as the fact that so much of uh, television in particular is such a cultural touchstone at the moment. I and mean, you hear more and more people saying, um, people saying oh you know this is the worst timeline or you know we're in the dark season of this show people really think because television is television particularly streaming television and particularly in the last five to ten years is this sort of unique cultural touchstone it is the it's the collective medium it's what you talk about with people you haven't seen for a while or people you don't know very well if you don't, if you're not into sports, which like, I'm really not, it's right. uh, it's what you do on dates. You sit down and watch TV. You scroll through. It's um, it's the novel form of the age for several reasons, mm. but I think mainly for that reason. It's um, and when you're creating television, you're creating culture. You you're you're shifting culture, and it's a responsibility. And I'd always. I'd known that from the outside, partly because, you know, I wrote about TV and sometimes mm-hmm. when a new TV show comes out that is a, uh, you know, contains certain issues, it's a really good opportunity to talk about those issues in, say, a weekly column that you have that you can't right. think of what to write about. <laughs> it's a useful, yeah, it's a useful entry point. Um, but I didn't realise until I, you know, I saw it from the inside how much of an impact you can have. Mm-hmm. Um, like, mm-hmm. I was working on The Haunting of Bly Manor, which was fantastic. And um, well, I had a great, great time and I'm really proud of the show. And um, uh, one of the things we did was we made the main characters queer, um, mm-hmm. we made them lesbians, and uh, which wasn't where we started out, but it just felt, it was a um, surprise was sort of, in, yeah, I was surprised, surprise lesbians. And I was, <laughs> um, I was like one of the people who was instrumental in that decision, which was taken for various reasons. And um you know, I just, you know, saw how it could work differently if we made these lovers women. And then watching it a year later, watching that story come out and watching people's reactions to it and saying like, you know, the portrayal of this, you know, powerful queer relationship in contemporary horror in a way that is and isn't about that, about the queerness. Right. And, um, you know, watching people react to it and watching people feel seen. It's not that it hadn't occurred to me it had it's just that you know I I'm lucky enough to you know be surrounded by a lot of brilliant queer people and I've always been in queer community and it just hit me for an in a whole new way how my god there's teenagers watching this who don't have queer community who don't have a model of like what future relationships could look like and every time something like this comes on tv it helps we got nominated for a glad award that was amazing I know it's um and just that and also you know with the with the nevers 
in my first, you know, three weeks there, when I just didn't, um, didn't really know what a staff writer, which is the most junior, <laughs> the most junior wrong in the writer's room. You basically, you know, the, what you do is you shut up and be grateful and you do what you're told. I wasn't informed of this. So there was a lot of me going, we're standing on chairs figuratively or literally going, let's talk about the British Empire. Have you heard about what we did you know, in Africa? Have you heard about Ireland? Like, and people are like, no, we haven't read deeply into the history of the British Empire because we're professional TV writers. So we've, said, yes. so we've spent the last 10 years building careers in television. Who is this mad woman? Like, like, what on earth is this person talking about and why? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's um, but it's really um, it was it's really and it's useful to be around being around TV writers and and around creative people and well fiction and prose writers but TV work is uniquely collaborative, and so I was you know I met playwrights you always have to have a playwright I think in every writer's room because they know about scene structure which is just mm -hmm. wizardry to me, but when people talk about the process of putting together fictional worlds it um. It, it impacted um, my journalism in a way I didn't expect to. Hmm. Um, and I actually, in the middle of the, I wrote a piece during my first few weeks in the Nevers Room, which I'm, I'm still, I think it's one of the best pieces I've ever done. And it's still like, actually we talked about it when we met because it had come out. It was the piece about going on the crypto cruise. Oh my God. And, um, yes. Yeah, it was, and I was, I was thinking about how to apply, you know, scene structure and TV, writer principles to that piece and I think that's one of the reasons it did so well is because I was like right how how do we how do we cross-pollinate this um it was uh yeah I'm I'm like also being in LA and being in America you're allowed to say things like gosh I'm very proud of this piece didn't it do well whereas in Britain you're like they're like oh are you proud of it are you it was good do you mm. like yeah I've, I've written a lot of things that are not good is what you have to do. Right. And two questions sprung to mind. One, mm -hmm. the cultural difference between Los Angeles culture specifically and then British culture in that way. And mm -hmm. also, how was it, I guess, how did it feel to impact culture via TV, via storytelling, as opposed to through journalism? Because through your journalism, you do impact queer culture, but this was like, now you're part of what mm -hmm. you're usually analyzing. Um, yes. And I was like, Thank what you. was that identity kind of shift like? <laughs> I mean, I love it. And like, I love it because because of the collaborative aspect. And one of the things and one of the things that's true as a TV writer is that I, I think this is mainly a Hollywood thing. But in Hollywood, um, which is kind of like fairyland coming from the mm -hmm. outside, you know, you're from L.A., but you know, Hollywood, <laughs> it's like, you know, the weather never changes. Um, it's always kind of a perfect sunny day. Um, nobody ages. Everybody smiles all the time. Um, but you have to kind of really pay attention to the words people are saying. But one of the things is like you are not allowed to talk about what's going on on the show, and you're not. You're definitely never allowed to say anything negative, which mm -hmm. um, as mm -hmm. a British as a British person is quite offensive. <laughs> but um, but it is. It's it's odd being literally forbidden from critique. Um, or to say like, you know, here's, you know, here's what the problems were, you know, you can't even mention that there were problems because it's very, you know, it's Hollywood, everything has a smile. And, um, and that is, I think in some ways that's, 
I mean, I guess they had to put guardrails up partly because they're probably worried that otherwise people would just tear each other apart. <laughs> and I think, the, I think the longer you go in, it's like in a family where nobody ever says neg anything negative any, ever, then, um, you know, the first time somebody does, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, people are but, like, ah, yes, and now the deluge. Yes, but it was actually, you know, coming from work where my job is to shout about everything all the time, um, it was quite, it was quite interesting to be, you know, in a situation where you are forced to see the positive of everything and you're forced mm. to just be a hype person <laughs> and just, yeah, just be, um, honestly, I consider uh, any TV project I'm working on and fingers crossed I get to keep doing it. Like my job is to be first fangirl in the way that, you know, you can be the first follower in a religion. Because <laughs> I come, my I mean, because my writing, um, the first time I started, the first way I really started doing journalism and doing writing was through fandom. It was through Live Journal oh, back in the day. And I, yeah, oh my I, and I, cause, yeah, I started out as a blogger. I didn't actually write, well, I did write fan fiction, but most of it is on paper. Thank God. Um, I like how I was just like, where's that paper, Laurie? <laughs> I know, somewhere in my mum's old house, like some real, like some Spike Buffy, like really, it was oh, really yeah. like, you know, really cringe, like, you know, 13 year old Laurie writes some very, very obvious Marty Stews and Mary suits. <laughs> like, oh, you're a vampire assassin, are you? Amazing. <laughs> also a witch. <laughs> Mysterious. <laughs> That's right. Everyone gets their start in a way, though, isn't it? Like, if you didn't write something cringe when you were 13, were you really living? Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's um, a surprising number of TV writers turn out to have been fanfic writers yeah. back in the day. Like, it's great but because it's collaborative as well. And it's incredibly, um, the fact that it's low stakes means people are very free to be creative. And honestly, that's... Um, that's one of the things I miss certainly about early days of blogging, which, you know, I started writing regularly on my live journal and I was like, I'll, I'll make this a professional, semi-professional blog on blogspot.com yes. in 2008. Very professional. And, um, <laughs> yeah, well, professional means people who aren't my LJ friends might see it. Oh um, man. But yeah, it came out of that fan culture. And, but um, thing about TV, well, particularly Hollywood TV writing, and I'm, I, I'm not sure how, I think this is possibly the case for music as well, but you can, you can, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong on this. Mm -hmm. The amount, the, the stakes involved are so high, partly because the salaries people get paid and the investment, the money involved is so crazy. Like the higher the stakes are in any creative enterprise, the, the harder it is to be, to be free about things, to take risks. Particularly, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people involved because everybody's going to be worried about something different everybody's going to have their own idea on how to how to make this a success in the best way and you can end up sometimes with the raw edges rubbed off and certainly yeah one I've been blocked over the last year from not from writing but from publishing in um, in non-fiction just because I'm like the stakes are so high now I've got this following and you know people people troll me and harass me I have to everything has to be right Everything has to be perfect. I can't just put out whatever. Whereas um, back in the day when I was putting out whatever, it was a lot more supple, a lot more fluid. And I think, um, and one of the joys about TV writing is because it's not just you by yourself, there is more freedom. 
there's more freedom you can be more supple um especially in like the you know the development and idea development stage because it's not i don't know there is a i'm sure you've found this but there's a real benefit to being able to take time to work on things that either aren't immediately coming out or you know there isn't that pressure of publication yes and with with writing in particular because now anybody can click publish um there is a benefit to doing creative work that is not destined for publication in any way yes it's it what you spoke to of the expectations and especially yeah. like you said that people you know have trolled you and harassed you and things like that yeah. like there is part of like in any creative industry like you know the whole thing of, that they joke about in music like the sophomore slump where it's like if you I don't know about that oh it's basically like say you know you release something that's like really successful whether it's your debut album or just perceived as your debut because mm -hmm, another mm -hmm. thing is that sometimes people perceive your first successful work as your debut even well, if it might not be your work first. for like 15 years <laughs> right right <laughs> so like there's totally that and then like whatever you release next like people call it the sophomore slump because generally whatever you release right after something very successful tends to not be as successful and the reason why is that like people already have this expectation of you and no one can live up to an expectation like that particularly Absolutely. as an artist you're making things not because of other people's expectations but because it's something that you feel drawn to create or write about and yeah. so it goes directly against usually why the thing you made was successful in the first place um mm -hmm. and so i like what you're saying that it's like you know there are some things that you have to create that are completely outside of those expectations. And when you're collaborating with other people, in some ways that bypasses those expectations because it's a different permutation. Mm -hmm. So yeah. people aren't like, ah, yes, it is Laurie Penny, the writer of the crypto article. It's just like, yes, it's exactly. Laurie Penny. Who's that? <laughs> exactly. And, and it, I mean, honestly, that was incredibly freeing about Hollywood as well because um, uh, it is amazing how people do not care what kind of public profile you have if you're not on the television, like on right. the television rather than writing for it. Like, it's like people do not give a damn if you write about politics. Nope. It's, and that was, it was great. It was great. Um, a, a bit odd because people don't, people, people maybe care about politics, but people within like, I think it's just another one of those things like, oh, we don't get political within television. Um, we don't, but you know, people aren't, constantly hooked right. up to the you know to the to the adrenaline of the news and the way you have to be if you're right. working in that kind of industry and it was yeah it's it's really it's really interesting to just go into go into a room and spend all day talking about made up things yeah while the world yeah. is falling apart outside that's also um, yeah I wanted to ask you about that that like particularly as you were writing a book about how everything basically needs to um be thrown in the garbage and reform. Yes. Um, like to speak in very woo-woo California terms, I'm like, it's the tower card where it's like, and now everything falls down and everyone goes, oh no. Yes. But then the star, oh, no. the star comes after. That's the thing is the star is the next in the deck, which is like, everything is like reborn and wonderful. It's sort of like dark ages, Renaissance kind of vibe. Um, yes. <laughs> like, I, I love the star. The star was always my favorite card when it comes up in the deck. 
uh, that's always me. But I love oh. I love tarot. I love playing with tarot. Me too. It's, I um, love symbolic language. I love exactly. I love that's what storytelling is. Yes. Story- Although, um, yeah, it's it's wonderful watching uh, watching some people uh, realize that um, reading tarot is a really good way to be able to tell all their friends exactly what they think of them. And they and yeah, I love that a couple of people I know have discovered that recently, and it is it is amazing to watch. It is just that you can just sit down and read someone yep. and uh, tell them exactly what you should do, you think they should do with their lives, and they I can't love, interrupt yep. because it's the cut. It's amazing. I'm putting it in a scene sometime. I uh, would love that because I know exactly um, who and what an exact situation you are speaking of right now, and so that's <laughs> really funny to me. <laughs> yes, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> And a lot of wise people who I probably should have listened to when I, you know, went off to do screenwriting the first time told me, really, you should set this book aside um, because it's a totally different, totally different muscles you're working and um, you're clearly, you know, deep in the weeds with it. And, you know, why not just cut your losses, call it. And I didn't because I'm stubborn and I don't like being told what to do, particularly when I know to write. I've got a bit better at this since, um, but I uh, did not believe in the sunk cost fallacy. And um, but over the course of the last year and a half, I have written this, you know, 110,000 word book, which has been redone and redone and redone as a thought exercise. Pretty sure it's quite good. I can't tell because you know how you are when you, uh, when oh, it, however, yeah. when, it's, when you get you get so close to a project, you just I have no idea. When you're that deep in a project, you have you have no clue. Absolutely. Maybe I'll read it in a year or so and be like, huh, that's all right as an observation. Um, <laughs> you're like, oh, it's really uh, on something. Yeah, well, yeah, I was under something there. It's um, but the uh, the just the breadth and depth of reading I have had to do for that project and for the you know for the essays I've done over the past couple of years have have. I think they make it, it's an unusual background of thought to bring to screenwriting, which I'm also doing, because, I mean, my disadvantage in screenwriting is that I've never been to film school, although I've taken myself through a lot of different amateur film school things since. You know, I had no idea how you sit down and structure a story on screen from start to finish. Mm-hmm. What I did have was, you know, a surprising amount of knowledge about the history of sanitation in the Victorian <laughs> era and a surprising amount of knowledge about different forms of journalism through the ages. And, you know, I've gone and, you know, been like embedded with young fascist movements and to see how the dynamics of activism work on the far right. And you know, let's talk about the history of left-wing activism in the 70s. And to the extent that, um, you know, a showrunner of mine once described me as a human Pinterest board, um, I mean, which is actually quite yeah. useful. I was, <laughs> I was in a place say, like LA. You're very much like, especially I love the way you just said that you're a human Pinterest board. I love that yeah. pretty much you're like, here's a collection of special interests. Which of them would you like to choose? I have a whole catalog. <laughs> Let me pull up the files. Let me pull up the files and think about it. Because um, Especially I mean, the way you spoke of researching. Like, that makes total sense. Yes. But, yeah. The absolute joy of the work I get to do, both kinds of work I get to do, and particularly because I've been lucky enough um, for the past many years to you know, be mostly single and to uh, not have a lot of dependent 
there and not have a lot of responsibilities that aren't my work and I'm, I'm very aware of that but it means more and more my job is to think real hard about things and go on exciting brain journeys and I love it I love it it is the it's the joy of my life right now and it's just it is such a privilege and I think you know particularly when I'm researching gender stuff and understanding the history of it how many bloody people who were assigned female would have got the chance to do work like this. That means you can just go and do self-directed study and research in all kinds of different fields. And that's your job. You're that's allowed to. Job. It is such a, it is such a pleasure. And I, uh, yeah, I hope I get to continue doing it for ages. And it's, uh, and I hope it um, comes out eventually in the work. Um, particularly over pandemic, um, when our pod rearranged itself, I was living by myself for more or less four months of not, you know, seeing people very occasionally, but it was mostly, you know, in the house time, pandemic yeah. raging outside time. And I spent that largely tidying the house, listening to lots and lots and lots of informative history podcasts. Mm -hmm. And I've only just noticed that again now I apparently know a lot of stuff about stuff. Which is <laughs> <laughs> well and you said something that um that I loved, uh that you said that you were like, and I didn't I didn't put that book down because I was in fact very stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was like, one, I appreciate that. Um, but also that like you did in a way it's strange because I don't think balance is necessarily the right word. I, I might mm -hmm. juggle uh, where it's like there was something that was captivating about that book, even if it was in some ways burdensome because you were like, oh, God, I haven't finished the book. There was something yep. that captivated you about that book, even as it like grew and grew and grew. And I like that you stuck with that story, that you didn't give up on that story, even when you were telling other stories, that you were like, no, there's something I have here. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it felt things in it feel it, the title is sexual revolution and it's uh it feels it felt like something I had to say and finish saying and work yeah. on and now that it's out there the um I don't know what your metric is for have I made a success of a particular piece of music a particular mm -hmm. piece of writing but for me particularly with a book because the amount of unless you're giant best-selling writer the amount of of impact you have with a particular book versus the work you put in is on a completely different level than oh, yeah. say the work you put in on an essay if I write an essay that's 3,000 words it's incredibly shareable it will reach a lot of people but with a book it's different a book is more of a slow burn and my metric for has this book been worth it is at least one or two people email me saying it's been really useful to them. Yes, that's it's, um, yes. You know, this has changed my life. It's depth of impact rather than reach of impact. But yeah, also, you know, the, the cultural difference you were talking about is the, you know, California, I think, is really good for British people because it forces us to get over ourselves. <laughs> um, it was so, and it's not just California I think it's America in general I remember I so I first came to New York when I was 25 I came to report on Occupy 
and um and then like there was a boy and I stayed and, and there wasn't a boy and then there was New York and New York's amazing I was 25 it was a really amazing time actually almost 10 years ago now mm-hmm. um the heady 2011 12 days but I was staying above a theater in Bushwick um, oh wow I was living above it it was a small theater called the the Bushwick Star and I remember some of the plays that were on there were just I mean, confusingly dire, confusingly. (laughs) And there was, honestly, there was one, they had like this showcase week where, you know, there were like 20 minute plays and one of them, and I remember this vividly because as mentioned, I lived upstairs. Yes. Um, One of the plays was just screaming. It was literally just a woman woman screaming on stage for for 20 minutes. And, um, And it just, it really hit me because the difference between New York, and I was in journalism world at that point, but overlap journalism literary world, is that like in Britain, you'd never put that on. You could have, no. you'd have that idea to do your screaming play, but even at the Edinburgh Festival, that at Fringe, you know, you'd, you wouldn't, you'd be like, oh no, I won't do that, that's too silly. <laughs> the thing I, I realised about Americans <laughs> is that like, Americans don't have that same sense, that same reticence, and they're not as afraid to be laughed at. Right. Because the thing is, if you're going to actually create good art, you have to have a culture where it's okay to put on your very silly screaming play. Because for every, so, so, so like in this showcase, that for every five or 10 of these completely ridiculous things, one will be fantastic it will be amazing and you don't get that one in the same way unless you have the space for all the others you have to have just the UK it's very there's a lot of tall poppy syndrome and you have to the earnestness is suspect um ask me how I know this as a as a as a very wholesome person (laughs) possibly I I Um, encountered this as I've gotten to know uh, well, I was just like, as I've gotten to know British people, um, yes. but uh, I don't think I ever told you that when I met um, when I met my ex, who mm-hmm. I just spoke to last night and had a really funny conversation with. Uh, but yes, but uh, when I met him, I thought I was being nice. Like he went to sit down next to me on a beanbag chair, mm-hmm. we were watching movies at a friend's house, and I was like, "Oh, do you have enough room?" And he was like, "What?" And I was like, do you have enough room? Do you want me to move over? And he's like, oh, do you want me to move over? And I was like, well, I meant like, do you, how do you want me to? Oh, th- no, that means move. Yeah, it literally, I was just like, I was, I was trying to, to be like, do you have, are you comfortable? Like, I don't know you that well, so I don't like be up in your space. And the more I was trying to be nice, like the weirder the interaction. Amazing. He thought I was mocking him later when we talked about it. I was like, what is wrong with you? And he's like, he's like, I thought you were just making fun of me being like, oh, which you want rubbing up against me? Like your tits or your ass? And I was just like, excuse me? And I was like, no, I was trying to give you like your personal space by asking where you wanted to sit. Yeah, and I so, love like, that upfrontness. Oh I love American upfrontness. It's okay to sit because um, yes. I'm a, like, I have certain <laughs> spectrum tendencies, not diagnosed yet, but, um, you know, job for when I get home, but like social rules in it's really refreshing when people, particularly New Yorkers, New Yorkers are the best for this. They just say, they just say if they've got an issue and you're standing uh-huh. in the way, New, New Yorkers will tell you. Californians won't tell you in the same way. But like, even I, you know, I know how to speak British, you know, 
British passive aggressive. I have a, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, my best friend is married to an American and I often have to translate because, <laughs> um, oh my God, because the thing is like, you know, she will say something like, oh, would you mind unstacking the dishwasher when you get a moment? And I understand that what she means is do it now. And exactly. I will be upset. I will be upset if within the next hour it is not done. And what he hears, because he's Californian, is, oh, if if I have time and I feel like it, I'll get mm -hmm. to that. But if not, if it, no, no. And I'm like, no, this is a this is a, <laughs> two cultures divided by a single language. Um, mode. At that exact uh, conversation, the troubleshoot for that is inquiring, when might you unload the dishwasher? Just so I know. Amazing. And that's, amazing. yep, it's the compromise because it gets across the idea that you are already assuming that they're going to unload the dishwasher, but you have yeah. to specify the time so that they go, oh, oh, you're assuming I'm going to do this. Okay, now I got to pick a time. That's <laughs> wicked. It's, um, oh, but like the, the, the counter to that is, um, you know, I would consider, like, I would find it really hard to say something like, can you unload the dishwasher? Because to me, that's rude. Right. That's rude. And my friend would like, you know, she would find it hard to just say it because it's rude. You don't say that. But right. speaking of being British in America as well, it is, um, it's, it's great. You know, if you're a bit of a weird person, I keep saying, <laughs> like, honestly, to friends of mine who are odd or socially strange, like, go to America. They'll just think you're British. You can get away with being a lot weirder over here. Because yes. um, people people don't notice. People just think that's how all British people are. And it's a lie. It's not true. Oh, and we let so much slide due to the accent. Yep. Like, yeah, I know, especially for boys. Oh, totally. You could be saying whatever nonsense and people would be like, oh, wow. <gasps> you sound so clever. <laughs> I know. I know. It's, it's, it's shameful because it doesn't work the other way. Although I think Americans do get a pass. They get a pass for kind of different sorts of behavior, but it's in a more, it's in a sneering way. It's like, oh, well, they can't help doing this. They're Americans. They're, they're Americans. Esen they're essentially savage. You know, they're, a <laughs> they're, they're just like Labradors or something. They're just, yeah, exactly. You know. <laughs> you know, it's, they can't help it. They're, they're impaired. Like they have a, Impaired by enthusiasm. Exactly, yeah. And it's just because, honestly, like Americans have that. Americans are allowed to be that earnest if they come yes. to the UK because you're you're foreign, so you're allowed. You How know, but that, actually, that's what, yes. what... Yeah, go on. That's what we all really want to do. Like, <laughs> like, it's like British people and maybe some other Europeans too, like it's... You know, when British people understand that we are allowed to be earnest and serious, really good work is created. And it's exactly the same, the opposite way around. When, when Americans get permission to be silly, yeah. Americans find it very hard to be silly and to take the piss out of themselves and other people. But when they finally, like the very best comedy, the best American comedy is, uh, and I think, I still think there's not a lot of good American comedy, but the American comedy that's fantastic is where people have worked out that they're allowed to be silly and then suddenly they're so good at it. Yes. Like, and that you're allowed to play, you're allowed to not take everything so seriously all the time. It's, um, and then it becomes, you know, that permission, permission to not take things seriously is, it's important both ways around, um, you know, both in what you're creating and in how you're creating it. 
um, I, I appreciate, like in college and university, I was, uh, I was in a panto society, if you know mm. what that is. Um, well, any British listeners will know. Um, I was going to say, you, explain to the yeah. American, because I kid you not, the first time you ever said that to me, I was just like, is that when you mime emotions? Is that when you sing it's... about them? Do you recite poetry? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. And here, here by hangs a tail. Uh, so panto is, it is a particularly British phenomenon. Um it is a, it's a play slash musical and they've been going, it's like it's Victorian, it's in the Victorian age and you, you go, traditionally it's over the Christmas time and it's a family show and it, it's long actually and they last like two, three hours and it involves, it's normally a fairy tale or something, it's Jack and the Beanstalk or Aladdin and traditionally it's got lots of people in drag um, but it's not the same as drag, you know, it's very obvious that it's a man in a dress rather than a man in drag or a transgender or a transsexual person. It's a very specific panto thing. It's mm. very, very high. It's very high camp. There are elements of vaudeville and the acting is not meant to be good. Right. It's the, it's it's a you know, it's burlesque. It's vaudeville. There are lots and lots of puns, lots and lots of dirty jokes, <laughs> lots of songs which are often, you know, if you go along, they'll do like their own version of whatever is top of the pops that week. Uh -huh. You know, it's, it's, and uh, in university, there was a panto society. Um, people who like panto tend to like musicals as well. There's a similar sort of earnestness. Um, yes. But I was, I was in the panto society. I actually ran the panto society for a year at university <laughs> and I still hang out with those people. And it is, I kid you not, I think it's one of, it's been one of the best things for my creative life since then, because also because it wasn't a professional panto society. We went around and performed in schools and old people's homes, and it was permission to suck at something and to have the most fun you could. Like we had, we were doing Jack and the Beanstalk. I was Jack and pantomime heroes slapped their thighs. Like, hello boys and girls. If you've ever heard somebody go, he's behind you, or, oh, no, they're not. Oh, yes, he is. <laughs> You're drawing a blank, but that's panto callbacks. It's a bit like, you know, the Rocky Horror Show. Has oh, gotcha. That has a, a big feeling of panto, although obviously it's, um, it's I also directed the Rocky Horror Show when I was a kiddie. Um, this but makes there's a big, so much sense. A, yeah, making the, so much of you makes so much sense, and it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a yeah there's a big overlap in um in sensibility if rocky horror is like it's basically an adult panto is what it is um but it's i'm quite a good performer in terms of like you know if i've got an audience of children i can be excited and excitable i'm a terrible actor really not good at all uh, but that that didn't matter that didn't matter um and then but you know we were doing jack and the beanstalk and um we were meant to have a cow, a cow costume. Okay. Um, but the girl who was meant to make the cow costume, um, I, I'm not sure how this happened, but um, decided uh -oh. that she didn't want to make a cow. Instead, she wanted to make a polar bear. Pardon? <laughs> a polar bear. So, so we had them. Um, we had, uh, we're just like, right, we'll go with it. So, you know, Jack was taking his polar bear to sell at market. Okay. Okay. And, um, yeah, we had that polar. We had that polar bear costume for years, and um, we, we appeared in every panto for some reason. It was quite hot in the bear, 
but um, but we were insisting it was a cow. The cow was just sick, so that's why it looked exactly like a polar bear. <laughs> well, it, I think I, she had a lot of white fabric. I'm flashing back to when you said, like, you know, that each character has these motivations for coming into the scene and what they want, yes. and why they're saying things, and I'm like, no wonder in some ways this is so mystifying that I'm like this sounds like what you're describing is the ultimate like spin cycle of what someone's motivations are it's like the it's yes. like the Escher painting of motivations absolutely <laughs> this was the society where the rule for the society was if you turned up and you wanted to be in the panto you got a part and if there wasn't one for you we'd write you one and um you know, we had a couple of people who were general, genuinely very talented and amazing singers, but they weren't always the lead because it had to be someone else's turn, you see. Mm -hmm. It was very mm -hmm. fair. But a lot of the people were, you know, people from like working class or middle class backgrounds who, you know, spent their entire lives, you know, really, really working very hard to get to these elite universities. A lot of, a lot of scientists, a lot of mm -hmm. lawyers, doctors, mathematicians, and um, people who you know, people who could really do with some silly, silly fun. Um, lots of doctors, actually. And um, it's, uh, yeah, it was it was fascinating watching. And it's been fascinating. You know, a lot of people are now working, you know, really quite surprisingly high-powered jobs in science and policy and other things. Not everyone, obviously, but right. it's been wonderful watching, watching how that has impacted everything. Because honestly, you just have to... Uh, we did also take some pantos up to the Edinburgh Festival, um, one of which was, uh, oh, we did The Matrix, the pantomime, which was brilliant. It was fantastic. We had a budget of about 50 pounds. Oh, my God. And, um, and that's because that's the point of panto. It's meant to be a bit crap, right? For the bit where Neo, who was obviously played by a girl, was, uh, you know, was, was floating through the air. We just had her get on a skateboard and somebody wearing black just sort of slowly pushed it along the stage. <laughs> Back to the Future, the pantomime. We wanted to do Dune, the pantomime. I was like working on a, uh, you know, a, you know, Dune, the so with a pantomime worm. I, I envisaged all this. And, like, oh mm -hmm. and the spice of life and the spice must flow. Yep. Yeah, Mother Superior as Panto Dame. Put your hand in my box. <laughs> kind of thing. Quite niche. I was gonna say, I'm like, I love the direction that this went because I was thinking about what you were saying about how, in a way, there's this silliness that's lacking in American mm -hmm. comedy, but also initially what we were talking about, even about like, you know, feminist journalism, that it's this world in which oh, yes. being, uh, well, threatened on a regular basis, yes. um, and it's like, how do you inject like the lightheartedness? Because the thing is, you can't write something that's I was thinking about this also in terms of like climate change and things like that. Oh yeah. Where if you write something that's just like, hello, everything is terrible, but with no like, here's some hope of what can change or here's some other ways we can frame things or here's where we can go from here. All you're going to do is like, you know, make people spiral even more, which we certainly exactly. all are already. <laughs> exactly. And I know you're exactly, exactly right. And well, A, it's, there is a lot of there are a lot of horrible things happening in the world and you have to be able to talk about them without freaking people out yes but also um doom is also inherently ridiculous right and people forget this and fascists are ridiculous and misogynists and racists are ridiculous and one of the things that disturbs me the most at the moment about 
about political culture and political writing and being involved in all that is how hard it is to laugh at the people in charge anymore. Right. Particularly in Britain, which is odd. Like they have, there's this new really censorious streak where we cannot laugh at ourselves anymore. And that mm -hmm. is what, that's what worries me about Britain going home soon. Because like, I mean, we're literally in a sausage war with Ireland, in a sausage war with not about, you know, about, well, all chilled meats, but, you know, sausages being transported across the Irish Sea. And wow. I was listening to the British radio the other day, and this was one of the top stories. And the, the people reading the news had to say sausage war about 20 times. And, every, and nobody was laughing about the sausage wow. war. Yeah, that's, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm having every time you say sausage war, I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> we're at war. We, we're going for a sausage trade war. It's like, you know, literally, it seems not a sausage party. That's over. Like, <laughs> is nobody is nobody joking about this? It's like, no, the sausage war is very serious. You know, it's a Brexit <laughs> trade. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Sausage war. Sausage war, for <laughs> God's sake. And, and apparently this is all serious and we can't, you know, we are meant to have self-deprecating humor. We're meant to be allowed to laugh at ourselves. It's, um, you know, we're not America. And it is really, <laughs> and the fact that you can't, like, it, it's a problem in left-wing writing and journalism as well, because people seem to still think that if you, if you point out how ridiculous the other side is, or if you make jokes at all, then you're not taking, you know, you're not taking politics seriously. You know, politics is far too important to take seriously all the time. I, I, I was like one of the only people to write about the, um, about the terrible racist pirates. Did I tell you about this? <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. I'm like, I'll send you the piece that I wrote about this. Yeah, while yeah. I was rereading it the other day. So what happened? This was in 2017 where, you know, there are a lot of migrants trying to cross the Mediterranean and there was a big, you know, huge scaremongering in Europe about the migrant threat to the European way of life, you know, neo-fascist, neo neo-Nazi groups and, you know, neo-Nazi adjacent alt-right groups of young people were sort of getting together with some people coming across from America saying, we will stop this, you know, we'll stop the Islamification of Europe was one of right. the things that yeah. just, I mean, you know, you know, you know what I mean. Like you don't, you don't have to explain you, you know what they're going to say already but so some of these people this this gang of people called generation i think the generation europa or something uh they all sound like you know odd websites but um, <laughs> porn sites but like um they decided that what they were going to do to prevent the uh, the migrants surging across the sea was they were going to charter a boat to stop this they were going to basically become pirates and something, something turn them, which is, you know, you don't turn people back in the middle of the sea. Also, you can't fight. It was not thought through, right? So they charter a boat, I think in Turkey, and they went across the Mediterranean Sea. And the idea was, you know, it was a publicist. Katie Hopkins was on this boat. And um, well, firstly, they realized that none of them, they're not sailors you know they're not part you're not a pirate graham um so they had to charter a boat with a crew and then they you know they had no idea what they were going to do when they got out there and rapidly they got lost <laughs> um, 
<laughs> at which point it became very clear that uh, none of them was an experienced sea person and they had no idea and they became stranded and the uh, the same people who had been rescuing migrants from the Mediterranean the you know the German search and rescue teams had to divert in order to save the Nazis in order to and oh my god and oh my god the the press release that this German boat put out was amazing it was so German it's like we are here to offer assistance to any vessel that anybody who may be in need in the sea in these dangerous times (laughs) and then not just this you know the shitty fake shitler youth awful pirates like so they finally get this boat back to Greece at which point I shit you not like 20 20 members of the, I think, Sri Lankan crew got off in Greece and claimed asylum. <gasps> so the net, the net effect of that trip was, uh, of that trip was to, um, you know, increase the number of migrants. It's like, this is exactly what we didn't want to happen. I love how that worked out. Just that chef's kiss. Like that, that just it's, worked it's out perfect. so perfect. It's beautiful. Perfect. but all the a lot of people you know were like oh well we can't write about this because it's just too sick it's like are you kidding we have to talk about how silly these people are because they're still dangerous because they're silly doesn't make them not dangerous but I think um you know laughing laughing in the face of doom and fascism is incredibly important and um, not being allowed to, even if there's a chilling effect and you're not allowed to as much as before, I think it is it is incredibly important because uh, you know you're in an authoritarian setting when, when taking the piss is not allowed um, yes. and pointing out how absolutely bloody ridiculous people are being is not allowed. And that seems certainly there is a chilling effect in British culture at the moment where that is less and less... You know, the BBC is much more wary about mm. lampooning the government. It never used to be. I mean, in all through the Blair years, you know, they were taking the piss out of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown every day. And there wasn't, you know, these people, the new breed of authoritarian does not like to be laughed at. It doesn't even like to be described. So that, I think, is the challenge for mm. the next few years. I loved what you said, that essentially... It- if we can't laugh about something, we can't actually do anything about it because we just sit there feeling miserable. And so no matter what story you're telling, if you're not engaging people in some way, like through pathos or through laughter, like what are you doing? Absolutely. Or camp, high drama, <laughs> give the people what they want. A little bit of it. Just a little. Life is more. Just a little. Just a little. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I love you. You need to go. Oh, I love you too. Tell me if you go out to the thing. I love you much. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Thank you so much for making time. This has been an absolute joy. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Why Not Both. If you liked what you heard, please make sure to like us and subscribe to us on your preferred podcast platform. You can also come hang out with us on social media. We are at WNB the podcast, both on Instagram and on Twitter. This season, we are brought to you by Under the Radar magazine. Under the Radar is a nationally distributed print, music, and entertainment magazine and website. You can find them at www.undertheradarmag.com and feel free to support them on Patreon. Extra special thanks to our producer, Laura Studeris, who is literally a rock star. Thanks again, and I look forward to seeing you next episode.